So recently, uh, we've had we've had a few hot takes. Um, we were talking about what are we talking about? Aliens the other night, or some of the other ones? Sasquatch. Heresy, uh, Nephilim, introduced yes. that idea to a few people. Yeah. Yes, but da Danny articulated that Hunger Games is better than Lord of the Rings as the best movie, movie trilogy of all time. And so because of that, I just really wanted to support him in this endeavor. I am the Senate. Okay, Joe. Um, so I, I did, I did actually. I was, I was going to throw out a question about hope, um, and we're going to get into this. But I actually, I actually genuinely really did like this quote, which only comes from the movies, by the way, and not from the books. Um, it, this is President Snow talking here, Seneca. Why do you think we have a winner? Seneca says, what do you mean? I mean, why do we have a winner? I mean, if we just wanted to intimidate the districts, why not round them up all at once? Hope. Hope? Hope. It is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope is effective. A lot is dangerous. A spark is fine as long as it's contained. So, so contain it. The theme of chapters five through eight in one word can be summarized as hope. And, and this is a question that I really wanted to get to. Um, why do you think it is that hope is so fundamental to human experience, um, even in, in, in your personal life? Why is it so, like what, what makes the idea of hope so quintessentially necessary to being a human being or becoming? Okay. In what would happen to your life if you, what has happened, what happens in someone's life when they feel like they are lacking any semblance of hope? Despondent, sad, depressed. Where, what sort of things do you see as people drawing hope from in either your life or in your friend's life? What, what do you see as hope? producing elements in people's lives. What do you think people garner hope from around you? The next president, the <laughs> next paycheck. Calendar year. Something to look forward to. Gas prices going down two cents. Yeah. Yeah. Some sort of like goal or something that they can look forward to. It's like a constant desire to attain the next thing. Yep, absolutely. It's humans really, this can be bad, but I also think there is a, a positive element to it. We struggle to live in the moment, um, and yet we, we really psychologically need there to be something that we are living for out in the future. So we're going to get into hope. That is the by far the dominating element from chapters 5 through 8, and we'll dive into that in a minute. But as always, as always, before we do, I want to review from last week. What is something that you remember from chapter four? Something that you personally remember from chapter four, not because you have my summary in front of you. What is something that you personally <laughs> remember from chapter four? Um, it was talking. It was about Abraham as a case example for what we talked about in chapter three about um, the law and circumcision, about how that those weren't effective to get rid of um, condemnation. Okay. Anything else to add to the case study of Abraham? Your face says yes. Your hand doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got one. Wasn't even here, but I got one. Uh, he was seeking to demonstrate his third chapter claims to be true. Paul argues that Abraham was justified not by works, <laughs> but by faith. Forgiveness, then, is not a debt of God's to be paid, but purely of his grace. The exact right of circumcision also did not save Abraham, uh, who was declared righteous prior to being circumcised, 
As such, Abraham is the father of both the circumcised and the uncircumcised that have faith. I could go on, and I have some other great points. I think I should stop there. Well, <laughs> that's a really good summary. I, I would have to say the best I've ever heard. <laughs> um, the promise made to Abraham cannot be on the basis of law, lest faith become meaningless, and the promise fail entirely since no one can keep the law. The promise instead depends on faith, and as such, Abraham is father both of the one with and without the law that have faith. Abraham continued to demonstrate this faith in God um, through his covenant, even when it seemed impossible from a human perspective. This faith-based justification is not just for Abraham, but rather it is now for us too who will be justified by faith alone in the work of God through Jesus Christ, both on the cross and in his resurrection. Since my other question didn't seem to do much good, um, I'll give you a new one. How have these concepts impacted your worship? That, that is the ultimate aim of these things, right? Is that these ideas, these doctrines are supposed to change the way you think about God and the way you worship him. And really just even emotionally, like the idea of being justified by faith is apart, you know, apart from works. How has that been important to you as you have thought about your own life and your own being? incredibly freeing okay because if we are justified by god then we are secure in our salvation yes therefore we are free to live out the claims and the promises that are in the bible without fearing um, damnation without fearing that you're going to be like punished eternally, like stuff like that. Like there's just a yes in the moment. God will discipline every He disciplines every son that comes unto Him, and you know brings him more into the conformity of His image. But like over time, that is like you're going to be free, and that's an amazing thing to live in. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Anything to add to that? I mean, I think that is the obvious, like, main thrust of it. Anything else personal? Growth in humility. Because it doesn't rely on, like, it's, yeah. not, it's not about me. It's not about how perfect I can follow the Christian walk. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so in your outline tonight, we're going to be moving into section three. Um, let's see, can I have your first page there? That'll be helpful for me. Um, the assurance of salvation provided by the gospel, the hope of salvation. So tonight we're going to be covering the hope of glory. That is that first section. Um, and the first 11 verses then are justification to are from justification to salvation, and verses 12 to 21 are the reign of grace and life. And so we're going to move through that. Um, but before we do, I wanted to show you something that I think is helpful. Um, Okay, all right, anyone who studies anatomy, what is that point right there called? No, in a moment. Anyone know what this is called? Um, I'm gonna take a guess. Okay, what do you got? The divergent point. That was a very, that was sounded very um, computer science of you instead of anatomy. Sorry, I like it to think of it as crisscross applesauce. <laughs> <laughs> all right, does look got anything, got anything for me? It's like on the tip of my tongue. If I give you the first word, optic, what would the second word be? Or Lexi, what do you have? Oh, I, would, I think first. Oh. <laughs> um, Starts with a C. Crossover? I don't know. Close, Joe. Chiasm. Okay, all right. It's the optic chiasm. This is oh, where. Right there so, <laughs> the the point that I want to draw out of this. Does anyone know what a chiasm is? I'm gonna guess it's where something crosses. Go ahead and look up, uh, somebody look up a definition for me in a literature. Isn't it like Hebrew poetry? It is. It is a liter uh, literature device overall, though. Somebody oh. somebody yell out. The optic oh. chiasm or optic chiasma is the X-shaped space located in the forebrain directly. <laughs> Not the optic the chiasm, just the chiasm. <laughs> chiasm. Oh, you said the optic. <laughs> Sorry. In rhetoric, a chiasm, or less commonly chiasm, is a reversal of grammatical structures in successive phrases or clauses, but no repetition of words. Yes, so this is exactly how chapter 5 through 8 is designed. It is designed as a chiasm. Chiasm 
in literature is something that crosses like that and you draw lines between them. So um, in chapter, um, starting in chapter five, you have like this principle A, and it's in uh, five, one through 11, and that is going to be um, assurance of future glory. Assurance of future glory. From there, you're going to move into point B, which runs in 5, uh, 20, 12 through 21, and that is the basis for this assurance, which is found in Christ. Then you're going to move into this chapter 6. Anyone know what chapter 6 is talking about predominantly? What's, what do you have for me? Somebody tell me what chapter 6 is about. Yes. So the point. Nice. That's a great. It really is a good chapter summer. Uh, so in this in this chapter, we are going to see that you're not necessarily you, Christians have hope to overcome sin. It's not just that you know you don't have any hope. And so this this through line, as it's called in literature, of hope is going to continue all the way through it. What is chapter seven all about? Anyone? That's a little bit. That's a little bit tougher to just look at the chapter, by the way, and release from the law. It is so. At the, <laughs> at the what is what is some of the what is the last verse in there? Like some of the last verses in chapter seven, though it connects it with what? It's being thankful for Christ's work. Right. Exactly. And so we're going to again see that it is now law and hope. Okay, law and hope. Then we're going to back out in the beginning of chapter 8, and this is going to go in uh, 1 through 17. And what are we going to see in that first bit of chapter 8? Anyone? This is a little bit tougher. It's not just a one-word summary of a chapter. Anyone know? It's showing the current state of Christians. It is. And so we're going back into the ground for this assurance. But this time, it's a little bit deeper, and it's mediated by the Spirit. You see, after we come out of law, Paul always contrasts law with, if you've read through Galatians, what is the contrast of law? Close. In terms of, in terms of power to do something in Galatians. The Spirit. The Spirit. And so Paul connects this concept over to Spirit, and then we're back out once again, back to this famous passage, which we all love, and that is Romans 8, 18 through 39, which has assurance of future glory, once again, as the main theme. So when we come into this part of Romans, chapter 5 is really going to be, you know, we, we get real, real, real happy when we get to Romans chapter 8, we're all like, yeah, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus, and yay. And this is, this is where we get really hyped. But what I want you to see is that, yes, we're going to be talking about sin. Yes, we're going to be talking about law. But Paul's point here is that for the Christian, we live in a, 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 a sphere and a life of hope. And so we're going to move from just the principle, broadly stated, yeah, okay, cool, future glory, that's our hope. Then Paul's going to, and this is where we really get, this is where it gets tricky tonight, is because Paul kind of gets into the technical basis for why we have this hope. Then he deals with these practical implications, sin and law. We back back out into grounding that assurance after we come out of the law section in the spirit. And then he sort of encapsulates it all once again as we move into, into what does that even mean? You know, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We have a hope of glory. And so that is, that is how I want you to think of this is I know that going through it quicker helps you not lose the forest for the trees, but uh, I, if you're trying to copy it down, really, you should just, I didn't even give you the full thing on the board, but visualize it this way, because this will help you see how it's sort of like this reverse triangle approach that Paul is taking. We go in and then we come back out and it can be, it can be this nice organized thing for you instead of just like, now we're talking about hope. Now we're talking about Adam. Now we're talking about sin. Now we're talking about the law. Now the spirit and that Jesus loves us a whole lot, you know, and this can really help you see 
the connectivity of what Paul is trying to do in saying hope is the result of being justified by faith. That is the very question. Um, go ahead. Let's. Ha- I, there's only a couple of verses. Who has one through eleven tonight? Go ahead. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So Paul starts out this chapter 5, and this is why there's debate about do we attach chapter 5 to chapter 4? Do we attach it to 6 and 8? Some see it just as a standalone transition chapter. And I I think there's good reason to see it as the like the delineating mark, as I've sort of argued implicitly here in the chiasm, is that this is to be connected with five through eight. Why? Well, he summarizes at the beginning of chapter five what he's basically been saying for two chapters now, and he says, okay, cool, we're justified by faith. So what? I mean, really, why does that matter? What does that do for us? And he moves into saying that now that we've been justified by faith, we have the first thing that we have with God is peace. This means that the hostility between man and God has ended. Justification happened, and now we have peace because of Jesus. It's not that there, there's no more wrath, and instead of wrath, we now have blessing. The war has ended because we have confessed Jesus as Lord. Now that we're in Christ, though, we're placed not only just in a place of not having wrath, but we're also placed in a state of grace, and we can receive blessing and confidently stand there and rejoice in that. So what is our hope in? And if there is a key phrase for where the rest of these three chapters is going, in some sense, this phrase right here in verse number two is the phrase that's going to encapsulate it. The hope of what? The hope of glory. Hope in the New Testament is not uh, a sense of wishing that something is going to come to pass. It's, It's not so much like, you know, I, I wish that Baylor wouldn't have lost so that my March Madness bracket doesn't get busted up. Um, this is a sort of hope that is confidently longing and expecting something to come to pass, much like my winning the bracket tournament, you know. But it, it's something that is that we are looking forward to as something that is sure and going to happen. And so being that this passage is a chiasm, we see in chapter 8 that the right down i i would assume that it's i would assume that it's around verse uh, it's verses 18 and 19 if i can picture it in my mind there there's a chapter there's a little chapter heading at verse 18 and 19 um, in chapter 8 the the thing that we see there is that all of a sudden it's talking about the the creation being restored it's talking about us being redeemed as the glory of god and so right here, when, when we ask, what is the hope of glory? You can go over to chapter 8 to get a little bit of definition there. And all this is saying is that basically we are going to be redeemed. We're going to be given perfected bodies. We're going to be given perfected souls. And you can also take the glory of God in another sense to be similar to, we talk, to what we talked about in Colossians. It's going to be the redemption of the lost image of God in us. It's the recovery of of God-likeness. Passage that just jumps to mind right now. How many of you, when studying gender roles, find it a confusing passage that uh, woman is said to be the glory of who? And man is said to be the glory of God. Not that women aren't made in the image uh, image of God, but it is that that, that, um, hierarchy, if you will, of we are being formed in the image of God, and that was marred, 
in the fall that is being restored and will we have that hope it's very annoying that we don't live a perfected life right now i am annoyed with myself that i am not perfect and i'm annoyed with the physical pains that i have because it, i can't always do what i want to do and we have the hope that that's not always going to be the case and this is exactly why studying eschatology is a purifying force in our lives like first john teaches he who thus hopes purifies himself even even as he is pure. None of us in here should be going around living a mopeful, depressing life, because, and none of us should really have depression as a defining characteristic because it's not. we have a defined purpose. We have a purposeful journey that our life is going on. And this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it illustrates it really well, and I think John Piper is on the same wavelength here when he talks about the sea, in the seashell message. Why is it that retirement age folks live in, there is so much depression in the geriatric population. Why? Why is that? I believe that the reason that there is so much depression in this population is that they, they dreamed of a career, a family, a life. They, in some sense, built a kingdom out of their life. And as you're striving for that, there is hope because, I mean, what is the only thing that keeps you going through the doldrums of school if not the hope that someday you're going to be able to graduate and hopefully make some money and get out there and do stuff? But someday you've done all that stuff. And, and so as on the younger side in life, you have the ability to set all of these measurable things out there that I want to accomplish in life, and you sort of set a kingdom within your very life. But someday, all that's going to either be done or not done. <laughs> Catch that. It will either happen or not happen. Either you accomplished it or it's too late to be accomplished. And it's over. And your hope that you have built your life around is gone. And so, Though there's nothing wrong with these things inherently, the purposeful end of your life should not be found in the day-to-day -day goals of retirement and your social security check and you know, hoping that you can just make it through life and life closes and you see the bottom side of the grass for a while. The purposeful end of life is found when, in this idea of having a glorified body and a glorified soul that is changed to look like Christ. And so we need to drink up these truths that our life our being beyond our body is headed eternally as a, into this Christian hope. And this should in turn make us feel more purpose-filled, more driven in our day-to-day. -day. You all, assuming you are Christians, have hope. And, and you must not forget that fundamentally you have hope. Again, it's not to say that Christians go, don't go through depressive seasons. That is certainly true. But what can we do to get out of that? What, what we can do is to concentrate on hope, that our, our life really is meaningful. It is going somewhere. And we don't have to live in this dull... Uh, one person, one old friend of mine who was describing depression just described it as the color brown. They were just like, everything is so meh all the time. You don't have to live in the color brown. You can live in wonderful, vibrant life. And that is what the gospel offers us. And we can concentrate on that. The unfortunate part is with a depressing uh, uh, stages of depression is that oftentimes it's um, self-fulfilling in the sense that it's, it's hard to get out of and even have the energy to want something beyond where we currently are. And so I encourage you, think about these concepts. The, the, your justification is great. It means that you got out of hell. It means you're going to spend eternity with God. But it means that you're going to spend eternity with God. And that, in, a, in itself, can be something that we, as we study it and explore what that means to us, is not just some abstract idea for the future, but it's something that should impact us emotionally today. It should impact us emotionally today. But what about when things go poorly, okay? What about when things don't shape up and our life as it stands today doesn't look like it has much hope for the future? Um, when things go horribly and you're genuinely suffering, it's, you can rejoice because you have hope of where you are going. 
that it won't last forever. Someday I'm going to be in the arms of my Savior, that I'm, it really is going to be all right. Suffering then can actually increase your hope because you know, you're, you're, you're focused on it. You're, you're growing in the fact that I'm looking forward to something. But it never seems that hope just happens during suffering. Um, when was the last time that you, in some capacity, were suffering and said, I just, you know, now that I'm really hurting and life is just terrible, I, I, you know, I feel more hopeful. I, it just never happens sequentially. Like, pain, hope. It, th that jump is never the, the first step that you take. And I think Paul is very astute here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say that it is a process of development from suffering, not just, oh, I'm suffering, now I have hope. Because that, at least for me, never happens in practical, like in my life, I never see hope just coming out of suffering. What is the chain? We suffer. Okay, what happens when you suffer? Well, you, assuming that you don't, you develop, you, you show that you are continuing even when it's hard. You are not quitting on Christ. So you develop what? You develop endurance. And when you don't quit, because quitters quit. And when you don't quit, what does it show that you have? You have been proven in some sense. I know uh, some translations have character and that's fine. But really the idea is more of a proof. Like metal has been proven and the dross has been removed, you are a proven character. You have something different in you because you really went through it and you really proved that you had something different inside of you. And in return, this should say for your own mind, I really do have something different about me. I really am changed. I really am growing. The hope is real. <laughs> I am changing. And I look over the past four or five years of mine and you know there, there are moments of suffering, moments of joy. Wow. Yeah, something good actually is happening. I am developing. I am sanctifying. I'm growing. Okay. The hope for me is real. And so this is, this is where Paul triumphantly agrees with you and says, that's right. The, this assurance of hope isn't going to let you down. You actually do have hope and you can actually look forward to something. And so then we have to ask, how do we know that this hope isn't going to let you down? What's the, what is the answer for why hope doesn't disappoint? What's the ethic, the principal ethic, I would say, of the New Testament that falls right after hope here in this passage? In one word. Love. Love. Love is the dominant theme in the next few verses. And whose love is that? It is Christ's love for us. Which, by the way, Romans 8, later chapter, later part of Romans chapter 8, back to a big emphasis on Christ's love for us. What is the first part of his love? Let's, let's hear it right here. And hope does not put us to shame. That is, our hope is not going to fall apart. It's not going to disappoint us. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been giving to us. The Holy Spirit being the mediator of it, when, when we are suffering and it's producing hope, we don't have to fear that we're going to fail in the final judgment because our hope is in Jesus and we can know that Jesus loves us. We feel in our hearts that God loves us. And let's pause right there. I don't necessarily care if you've been moved to tears by it or not, um, but have you guys experienced at some point in your Christian walk, some point where just simply your heart was moved to say, yeah, I really know, subjectively speaking, that God loves me. Some Okay, I think that is a... I think scripture would indicate that that is a universal Christian experience. That there is some point at which like our hearts cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit's working in us. And in our own heart, in a very inexplicable way, we know it to be true because we have felt that God loves us. That is the first part. Uh, you know, whether it's, whether it's more complex and you're, you're crying over something, you know, more thoughty or just a very simple Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, type of, I know Jesus loves me and I know it because inherently I know it somehow. There's that subjective element to why we can be sure that 
our hope in the final judgment is actually going to get us through. We, we felt it. We know it. It's not a I mean, to a critical thinker, it's probably not the most like, you know, convincing testimony ever. But once you're inside the body of Christ, you're like, it's, it just kind of is true. You just know it's true. But it's not just a subjective thing, right? We have, we then flip and Paul sort of says, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. Um, Paul flips and gives us a bit of more of an objective side as to why this is true. <clears throat> excuse me. For while we were still weak, <clears throat> morally speaking, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So yes, we get the, we get the feels, we get the emotions that God loves us, but <clears throat> there is this, obvious and very clear sense in which we can tangibly, rationally, empirically know that it is true. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ came to die for us. And Paul wants to draw out that this is very special and this is very unique. Why? Well, from a human perspective, on a rare occasion, on a rare occasion, if somebody believes that there is something really noble or really good in some person or some cause, yes. Occasionally you will see people being willing to lay down their life for some cause. That's even in human experience where we have a tainted view of what is good and what isn't, that's still pretty rare that someone just selflessly lays down their life. Very, I, I, I mean, I don't, apart from the love of Christ being shed abroad in someone's heart, I really can't think of any worldly examples of where Someone voluntarily laid down their life for someone who hated them and they hated them and there was animosity and enmity between the two parties. I, outside of the Christian sphere, I don't really know of any examples in which people just die for people that they hate. That is not, the, that is not normal. That is a very Christ-centered thing to do. And this is what Paul says, like, how do you know God loves you? Because we were sinners and there is no higher form of love than that a man to lay down his life for his friends. And we weren't even friends, right? Okay, we weren't even friends with God at this point. And Christ is being willing to die for all of humanity in its ugly and sinful state. And he's still willing to come and he's still willing to die. So if we've been justified or made right before God, you know, we're back to this idea of justification and right standing before God, then we can be confident that we're going to be saved from his wrath. This is an argument technique known as, and I should have written down, I, just for the fun of it, I should have written down the Hebrew words because it looks really cool when you write it out. But from, in the Hebrew tradition, this is uh, an argument style called from light to heavy. In the Western tradition, this is from, uh, from minor to major. If this, and this is a little thing, <clears throat> then certainly this. Does that make sense? So from the light to the really heavy point or from the minor point to the major point. Um, notice in this verse, once again, the already not yet tension. I just like to draw these things out so that you can see it um, as I see it in here. We are saved when we're justified, right? We can say that we're saved, and yet we're not yet saved because there has been no wrath of God revealed against mankind in a full and complete sense in the day of the Lord that we need to be saved from his wrath yet. So we are justified. It is fair for us to be saved already, and yet we are not yet saved, okay? There's just... <clears throat> <clears throat> Another example of the already not yet tension. Our salvation might even be referred to as inaugurated. Um, and our salvation is yet to be consummated when God's wrath is poured out and we have something to be saved from. So not only, is, not only were we justified, which has this legal courtroom type feel, but then he sort of switches. I believe it's, uh, yes, over here in verse 10. It's not just justification, but it's also what? What's the next key word in there? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. That's not just like a courtroom type, you know, the judge pronounces you not guilty. This is a relational term. Okay, we have, we have been reconciled, for if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So we were made to have basically a relationship with God. We were brought from this very enemy, animosity-driven state, and now we've been pulled into a reconciled state, one where we have a relationship with God because of his death. But then he says something happened, what? Because of his life. What happened because of his life? We're going to be saved we're going to be saved. 
let's see here. Uh, yeah, so this is again this greater heavy side that we can be confident that we're going to be saved because he lives. Now, I don't want to steal too much from going into chapter 6, but we are united with Christ. Chapter 6 really picks up on this theme of being united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection and in his life. We are united with Christ in his death and life and nothing Nothing can separate Christ from eternal life. John says that the Father has given to Christ eternal life. If we are one with Christ, we will have that life too, and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Does that sound familiar? Of course, over in Romans 8. So if Christ has eternal life, and we're united with Christ, there are only two things that could ultimately result in us not being saved. Number one, Christ doesn't have eternal life. But the Father has given that to him. So if Christ were to cease existing, then yes, it is possible that we would lose our eternal life. But Christ can't cease to be. The only other option then is that Christ and us would cease to be, what? United. Which Paul then turns around and sort of triumphantly addresses, and this is where we see this high point of the Christian faith, that nothing is ever going to separate you from the love of God. How? In Christ Jesus. So you can't be separated from Christ. Christ can't not have life. And if we are united with Christ, then his life is what's going to save us. Does that make sense? Okay. So reconciled in his death, saved in his life. But it's not just that we went from enemies to neutral. What's the next step? But much more, what is it? We, what do we do? It's not just being reconciled and sort of hang around and being on awkward terms. It is what? What does your translation have? There's a few different options here. Rejoice. We rejoice, yes. Now we pick up on the John Piper theme, right? Christian hedonism <laughs> is back, right? So we are not just in this very neutral relationship. We are in a relationship in which we get to rejoice boast, exalt in, in a relationship with God. It's not just that we went from being enemies to neutral, we went from enemies all the way to rejoicing and exalting and loving God above everything else. It is, it is all because of Jesus, and we are now in a very joyous relationship with him. I think that is super simple. This first half of this chapter, super simple. We have hope. Jesus loves us. This I know because I feel it, and this I know because Jesus died for me, and we're going to be saved. That's a very simple result of justification. The second half of tonight, the reign of grace and life, which I'm going to have read here in, in a moment, it is substantially less clear. This is a tougher one to follow. There are multiple different options and different ways to go at different junctures. I can't give you all of them in the 20 minutes that we have remaining. So I'm going to give you one of them and try. Okay. And so um, let's have it read, which I think will be complicated enough <laughs> just hearing it read. I'll give you a broad overview. We'll dive into it. And then hopefully we'll pull back out to see the broad picture. And then I'll give the summary at the end so that hopefully, hopefully you can get sort of the broad theme of it without getting too lost in the details. Hopefully you're going to accomplish that. It's going to be difficult. <clears throat> Same. Yep. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For in many died through one man's trespass, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, but the judgment following one trespass brought but the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience that many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to, came in to increase the trespass, but where, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So this section is designed, in my opinion, to give a sort of behind-the-scenes look at how it is possible for this hope to be real. Okay, How is it possible that one God-man could accomplish all of this for all of these people? How can this hope be for all of us? How is it even possible? And, and so there are, there are theological concepts that I, I want to go into, but I just can't for the sake of time today. And if you want extra credit, I'm going to give you a couple words that you can look up to see some debates on your own, got questions, has an article on it. I don't necessarily agree with it, but it'll at least get you started. Um, federalism and seminalism are some good, good keywords um, to start diving into. Federalism really leans on this passage. Seminalism leans on some more passages in Hebrews. And then I read other authors who I think sort of combine them on accident because they, they're not using the words and I think the concepts have overlap. It gets really complicated, but these are some, these are some concepts that you can go research um, in your own time to see some debates on how it is that we were quote unquote in Adam. And I'll let you do that and I'll let you, and I, but right now I'm just gonna give you an overarching view of what is happening right here, right now in this passage. To give you this overview before going through it, I think the parallel that is the most simply stated is that we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. This idea focuses more on a corporate nature of the church, a grouping, um, as opposed to uh, the element of the individual. It's more of the group than it is the individual. Christ is seen here as the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man if you are familiar with the hymn. And though this is a complicated text, I'm going to try to get through it, so buckle up and hang on, and hopefully we'll see the glory of the Lord in this passage. So to keep it very simple, we're going to start, keep it simple, and it'll get plenty complex, plenty fast enough. Keeping it very simple. Sin came into the world when Adam sinned. That, see, that's so nice. Adam sinned, sin came into the world. Very simple. The result of sin coming into the world was both physical and spiritual death. There are fancy words for that. Let's just keep it simple. Physical and spiritual death happened as a result of sin coming into the world through Adam. And the first point I would like to draw out of this is that the New Testament consistently leans on, draws off of, rests on the historicity of Adam and the Genesis account. It is always presumed to be taken literally, and any attack on the historical account, particularly Adam, but Genesis at large, with Abraham and the rest, is closely related to an attack on the gospel. Second, verse 12b is really where we're going to start to dive into getting our first interpretive problem. Okay, look at 12b. I love it. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Augustine takes this one way. I'm not going to get into it. The easiest first glance reading is that death is spreading to all men because all men sin individualistically, right? We all sin. We all experience death. While this individualism may be present in the broader context, if you look down at verses 18 and 19 particularly, there seems to be more of a corporate emphasis as well. So while I, am, I understand and would be down for a technical debate on these elements, I think seeing Adam as what would be referred to as our federal head or the representative of humanity overall is the best way to see this. Even, on, even in chapter 6, there's such an element, uh, such a focus on our union with Christ and his work that I think it means less contextually if we don't see this passage as being a discussion of union with Adam. Right? I think if we want to maintain the doctrine woohoo, of being united with Christ, we also need to recognize that at one point we were united with Adam. 
So my personal tendency here, the question then becomes, how do we square the corporate nature of this passage overall and some things that seem to lean individualistic? My personal tendency, contrary to some, is to see both here. I think Adam's sin is charged to us all because for something that we did not do voluntarily, verse 18 and 19, but verse 12, we then have, we live out the position humanity was placed in because of Adam's sin in our own personal sinning. Um, so I just ask that you give me a little bit of grace as we go through. I think we are guilty because of our vicarious participation in Adam's doing. He was, it's like a representative government. He did something on the behalf of all of humanity and all of humanity is held guilty before God for that. But also, all of us live out that sinful position on a day-to-day -day basis. Does that make sense? I see it as a little bit of both. I don't, I don't necessarily see this as mutually exclusive. Death passes to all men because all men sin. We all sin. That is a true statement. We are also, I think, corporately as humanity overarching, guilty because of what Adam did. So I don't think, and I also don't think then we can really say we do much better than Adam because we continually live out exactly what Adam did. And we are put in this category of sinners, and because we have this sin nature, this sin categorization from Adam, then our nature flows into our day-to-day -day life. Does that make sense? We do what our nature and our placement determines that we do. <clears throat> so we see that death is in the world for all men, whether you think of this as a result of individual sinning or humanity sinning at large, this is something we'll return to, but we can be sure that sinful actions were happening in the world prior to the law being given. Okay, that's another very simple point. Before the law happened, there was sin. But we also know that Paul distinguishes consistently between sin and transgression. Without a law, you can still do the wrong thing, sin, but you can't be held as a violator of a law without a law being there. That is transgression. Transgression doesn't exist without law. So death is in the world even before the law was given for anyone or everyone. And these people that lived before the law sinned in a different way than Adam. How? Adam had a command from God, don't eat this fruit. Adam violated the command. He transgressed. The people before the law was given, they sinned, but they didn't commit a transgression because they didn't have the explicit writing of the law of God. This is why it says that, um, for indeed sin was in the world before the law was given, um, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Even, and then skipping down, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Another word, I'm just gonna throw this out. This is impromptu. If you have my notes, this isn't in there. Look up if you're into Reformed theology. This is where the idea of the covenant of works comes in. Okay, covenant of works. Nathan's excited. So covenant theology, although I tend to have some real fond leanings towards new covenant theology and progressive covenantalism, kingdom through covenant, these ideas. Old school covenant theology, which will just keep it simpler for you right now. There's a covenant of works. Adam failed. Salvation was originally by works, right? Don't eat the fruit, have eternal life. That failed. Anything else, Abrahamic, Davidic, new covenant, all falls under a broader covenant of grace. All of those are covenants of grace. So that's, that's something you can sort of parse out later in your own time. Adam failed in this covenant of works, and now everything else has to be by grace. So then we have the law given, and people are going to violate it. Adam is, a, Adam is a type of Christ, and this is why Christ is referred to as a second Adam, because they're both going to pass something on to their posterity and the people that they are connected with. So now we're going to dive into, for Paul, what did Adam pass on to his people? What does Christ pass on to his people? Does that distinction that Paul is setting up make sense for you guys? Okay, so we have two groups of people. They're both passing something on. Now we're going to look at sort of a parallel of what are each passing on. So what did Adam pass? Uh, what Adam did on behalf of humanity is different from Christ in a couple of respects. First, it is different with regard to degree. 
Sure, many died because of Adam's sin, but the gift of God that God is giving to us in Jesus, it did much greater things than what Adam did for us. What Christ did is fundamentally more powerful than what Adam did and is thus able to overcome it. As sure as death was in Adam, so much surer is life guaranteed to us in Christ. In other words, if you think death is an axiom of human existence, so much more you should think that life is an axiom of the Christian life. Okay? For Adam, death and taxes is a defining characteristic of what it means to be human. To be in Christ means that life eternal is what, it, what Christ is going to give to us. That is, it is a different in degree. It is able to overcome the death and give us life. It is more powerful. Second, it is different with respect to its consequences. Adam's sin brought what? It brought death. It brought judgment. Christ brings to us justification before God. Why is it then that Christ's gift to us is so much greater? <clears throat> this is kind of interesting. It only took one sin for Adam to plunge the entire race of humanity into condemnation. But this gift of God is able to cover innumerable sins that have happened since Adam. So the gift of God is greater than the one sin of Adam. Does that logic make sense? So sure, Adam's one sin plunged us into death, but Christ's gift to us is able to cover innumerable sins. It's this one act of obedience by Christ is more powerful than the one act of disobedience by Adam. This is why, again, Christ is referred to as the true and better Adam, come to save hell-bound man. <clears throat> so if you were still found in Adam's corporate identifying group, you had nothing to receive but sin and death. But a gift has been offered to humanity where you can become united with Christ and receive it, this gracious free gift because of Christ's work. You were born into death. You were born into Adam's corporate identifier. You didn't have a choice. But Christ's union is different. It is an opt-in program. If you receive the gift, then you are able to receive life. This is a summary in contrast between the two. Verse 18, this reception is important um, as we consider where we're about to go um, into verse 19. Verse 17, it is very much an opt-in program. I want you to keep that in mind because when we move into verse 18, if you take some of these words, then you're going to, ultimately you would land in universalism if you're not careful. Verse 18 says, one trespass of Adam got us all into this Adamic mess. The one act of Christ's righteousness got us all to be blessed. And here, by the way, is a perfect, perfect illustration of the word all being used in a way that does not refer to every single human individual to ever live. Because all, in verse 18, only refers to the people who receive the gift. Yeah, and if you go the other way, then you are forced into universalism, which directly goes against the text as a whole because this gift is only for the ones that receive it. So all is, <laughs> this, is this is kind of ironic, but all is limited to the many in this passage. When Paul refers to all for Christ, he's referring to the many. As I thought about this, excuse me, I really apologize. All that are in Adam receive what Adam has for them. And all are the all in Christ. These are two completely separate alls. There are two alls of humanity. Alls that are in Adam and alls that are in Christ. All of humanity in Adam will receive what Adam has for them. All, which is the many, that are in Christ will receive what Christ has for them. Verse 19 then. Here we go. Please stay with me. When Adam sinned, then this disobedience caused, would be a fair translation, mankind to be sinful. Because of the in Adam versus in Christ theme of these verses, I think it is fair to say that when Adam sinned, that guilty, sinful standing before God was given to us as a result of one guy's sin. 
humanity stands condemned as a corporate unit already before God because our representative broke the covenant of works. Accordingly, then, not only was it his decision as a representative of humanity to get humanity categorically placed as sinners, but then we also inherited this nature from Adam. In some element, in some sense, then, both elements are true. Death passed to all men because Adam, as the corporate representative of humanity, sinned. So we are guilty, quote-unquote, in Adam. But death passed to all of us individually because we replicate the sinfulness of Adam in our own life when we sin against God. By the way, just as a side note, this is also why I'm a big fan of saying that genuine faith, genuine regeneration, genuine being in Christ has to result in some good works. If our union with Adam, that categorically placed us as sinners, resulted in some moral difference, then so too our categorical placement in Christ must result in some moral difference as well. And chapter 6 will examine why. So if this is, this is a weird, I, I'm, I know I'm losing some of you. Some of you that are soaking this in. So we'll, we'll come back eventually. I'll pick you up later. <laughs> Chapter 6 is going to explain to you why those who are in Adam only do sinful things. You know, if this parallel is so true, then why don't those that are in Christ only do righteous things? Right? That's the question. If we're both united, and we both are completely united with our corporate head, and the ones in Adam are being completely sinful, then why are we not being completely righteous in Christ? Chapter 6 will explain why Christians have a mix of sin and righteousness. Okay, And we'll get into that next week. So there's just a little foreshadowing for you. But on the other hand, then, this is not designed to leave us depressed. On the, on the contrary, Christ's act of righteousness on the cross, Paul's probably referring to the one act of righteousness of Christ's obedience, is powerful enough to move the many into a position of righteousness. They will be caused to be righteous, made righteous. We are not guilty in Christ. For purposes of this text directly, I think it has more to do with judicial standing as righteous or as sinner than it does to have than it does with righteous moral conduct. Okay, um, when Paul says made righteous. It is usually more in this judicial, uh, justifying type sense, not a, they're a better person type sense. And so Adam categorically made us to be sinners. Christ categorically made us to be righteous. And then each of those categories will live that out in their personal lives. Okay? So while the paradigm has been set up that every individual is either in Christ or in Adam, the question might be raised from the time period of the law. The Jewish view was that the Torah, Torah, was given to bring life. Uh, one saying from the Mishnah is that the more Torah, the more life. And Paul debunks this view by saying that the more law actually brings more trespass. In other words, it was just sin beforehand, right? It, you know, we, going back to um, verse, uh, the verse 12, 13, 14. It was just sin when there was no law. There was no transgression because there was no law. Why was the law given? The law was given to transform what is just sin into transgression. And so what Paul does here is instead of putting the law on the side of Christ and life, he places the law more on the side of Adam and death because it just it really more defines sin than it does bring life. So instead of so combating the view that the Torah was bringing more life, it actually is just further defining what sin is, further condemning you, and therefore, if you're going to place it into this dichotomy of categories, then if you're going to have to place it one side or the other, the law should be placed on the side of Adam, death, sin. That will sound familiar when we get into chapter 7. The power of sin is what? I may have misquoted. Paul associates the law with the with sin. The the power of sin and death is the law. That is that is the 
operating force, that's what gives it power, is the fact that the law defines it and it kills you. Okay, that's where we're going in chapter 7. And so Paul is placing the giving of the law really more on the side of Adam and death than he is on the side of Christ. Not that it's bad. The law isn't bad. We're going to get to that in chapter 7. But if you had to place it somewhere, it's going on this side. It's not giving you more life. It's giving you more defined version of how you're going to die. Okay? So, uh, yes, so just like Adam had a law from God, now all sinners have a law too. And so it makes them more like Adam because all transgress the explicit commands of God, and that makes us very like Adam. But for all the wrongdoing, the more wrongdoing that gets done, God's grace superabounded. I forget the Greek word off the top of my head, but it's not just, it's where sin abounded, grace superabounded is the idea of the word. Going beyond that which is exceeding already is the idea of that superabounding word. So as sin gets worse and worse, then God's grace is more and more because it overcomes all of this sin by a long shot. God's grace is always more powerful no matter how much sin happens. The law was given, transgression is happening, yes, but God's grace is more than that every single time. Because of this, while sin was reigning and death and it has dominion over humanity, if you are willing to receive this free gift and get out of being in the corporate grouping of Adam, if you're willing to, then if you're willing to receive this free gift, then you can have a transfer into the place where grace reigns in a section of humanity dominated by righteousness. The sphere of living leads to life through Christ our Lord. And Paul is going to use the same analogy to refer to, refer to our future life in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22. Last text for tonight. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as Adam all just as in Adam all die, also as in Christ all will be made alive. And so you see this eschatological focus is back and better than ever. If you're in Christ, you're going to have eternal life because life and Christ go together. At the resurrection, if you're in Adam, then you're going to have death because those two always go together. You're in one corporate representation or the other. You should come to the right side. That's, that's Paul's argument here. So I understand that this passage is complicated and it's hard, and I, I, I honestly feel that I may have lost you guys. I feel like there could have been a little bit <laughs> better job in delivering this in terms of teaching, but uh, allow me to provide this in my weekly summary, and hopefully hopefully this will be able to sort of back us out one last time and give you an idea of how we can pair these elements in a more cohesive, understandable way. So now that we have been justified by faith, we can also take hope of the glorious future we have in Christ. Whenever we fall into suffering times, our hope grows as we are transformed. This hope is sure because of the love of God, which we experience in both a subjective and an objective way. This objective demonstration of God's love by dying on the cross justifies, reconciles, and causes us to rejoice in God. The basis of this hope is that while every individual human is born in corporate solidarity with Adam, humans can receive the free gift of God to be found in union with Christ. When Adam acted on behalf of humanity in the garden, catch this, this is really the summary statement of this second half, his obedience resulted in death, judgment, condemnation, and positional placement as sinners. Not only are humans corporately regarded as sinners because of Adam's representative action, but they also confirm this by sinning and experiencing death as a result of inheriting Adam's sinful nature. When Christ, the second Adam, acted on behalf of his people, though, on the cross, his obedience resulted in a free gift of life, as opposed to death, grace, as opposed to judgment, justification, as opposed to condemnation, and positional placement as righteous as compared to sinful. In Adam. They're exact opposites and it's more powerful. The law shows that humans sin against explicit commands of God like Adam, but God's grace overcomes it and gives us eternal life in Christ. Okay? So that is Paul's very technical way to argue why hope in Christ is actually real. Okay? 
And maybe you're not into the technical side, but Paul, I think, gives us a, sort of a behind the scenes. Like if you're a thinker and you want to know why we can have this hope in Christ, here's a really good explanation as to dividing humanity into two parts and seeing it through. The question that should pop in your mind at the end of that is if sin abounds more and there's more grace to go with the more sin, then what should we do? We should sin more, right? That's what Paul picks up in Romans chapter 6. He's going to build off this idea of union with Christ as our we have a new positional placement in Christ, then it's stupid to even draw that conclusion because our nature will result in different actions. This is why the idea of quote-unquote lordship salvation, I think, to be so biblical. Genuine faith always results in genuine action because you are united to a new corporate head and you cannot not carry the characteristics of your corporate identifier. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I know that was complicated. There's plenty of different views. It's a little, What I did is a little different from Luther and Calvin. It's a little different from Moo. It combines them all. I'm trying to make it a little bit simpler for you guys. So hopefully that's helpful. Hopefully it gives a little bit of a basis for your hope. And then next week we'll cover why you don't have to be in the doldrums about sinning forever in your life. Okay? That's all. Okay? Thank you guys for being patient. I appreciate it.